The older we get, the more we discover that life does not flow in predictable lines, does it? We make our plans. uh, We set our forecasts. We do our best to finesse our way through this life. We work to set up rules and security fences. But as any of you who have ever faced great loss or great hardship know, life remains a meandering mystery. It remains a an uncontainable mystery that will not easily be managed. In its easiest moments, it feels like a friendly river, perhaps. In its toughest seasons, life feels like a dangerous flood. And maybe that is why so many people throughout the ages have turned in those tumultuous times to someone beyond themselves, to something beyond themselves, beyond this life, beyond other human beings. It's why so many turn to God. We look to God to uncomplicate life's complexity. We look to God to make it safer and sweeter and more serene than this flood sometimes feels. And from all of the evidence that we find in the scriptures of the New Testament, this was surely a part of the motivation that drove the first people who followed Jesus. I don't mean to suggest that they weren't motivated, at least in some part, by desire simply to get closer to God, simply to know Jesus for his own self and value, uh, regardless of what he could do for them. But from the side conversations that the Gospels record, it is also clear that a major part of the motivation of so many who went after Jesus uh, was in order to better control life's flow, if it was possible. We know that Judas was in it for the money. At least by the end, Judas was primarily interested in how following Jesus could lead him uh, to the money. We know that James and John, from the side conversations they had, were in it for the power and the position that being in the new administration Jesus would establish might render to them. Peter, he was in it for the prestige for the sense of pride that would come from being there at the right hand of Jesus. Others were certainly in it for the health benefits, uh, we know, for the healing that he offered, for the food that he seemed to dish out, uh, for all of the social benefits that might come from hitching your wagon to the rising star of the Messiah. This was part of the benefit. This was part of the motivation. And that is why when we meet them in John chapter 16 and at verse 27 today, the disciples are so understandably disturbed. They are so understandably confused. You have to understand that in the verses that precede our text for today, Jesus has been telling them that some very difficult times are coming. And this does not fit at all with the picture they had of what the future should hold. They definitely believed that to follow Jesus would lead them ultimately into a place of greater placidity, prosperity, uh, all of the uh, great advantages that come uh, with harnessing yourself uh, to the power of God. And then Jesus uh, starts to sharpen his teaching, and he begins to describe a future that doesn't sound anything like that peaceful river for which they were longing, and so much more like that dangerous flood they were trying to avoid. Jesus tells them that uh, you who are with me now will actually betray me. You will abandon me. You will deny me. I will be handed over to evil men, says Jesus, to be tortured, 
crucified, dead, and buried. You'll be hated by people because of me. They're going to persecute you, and they're going to hurt you, as they will do to me. You will be thrown out of the synagogue, says Jesus, ejected from the religious places. People will hunt you down. They will kill you. And they will do so believing they are serving God as they do it. It is actually going to get even worse than this, says Jesus, and it is best I don't tell you about it. I have much more to say to you, says Jesus, more than you can now bear. And then Jesus drops a further bombshell. I'm going to leave you, said Jesus. This is your future, and I'm going away from you. John 16 and 16 reads, In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me again. Christ was referring, of course, here to his earlier promise to them that after three days in the grave, he would rise again. The disciples, however, don't get this. They have no precedent for understanding this. What Jesus is saying to them is just so upsetting and disturbing. Some of his disciples said to one another, the Bible says, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? What does he mean by saying, because I am going to the Father? They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. And I picture Jesus. I picture Jesus not irritated, not frustrated, not angered by this response from them. I picture Jesus smiling. I picture him thinking, ah, now we're getting someplace. The Bible goes on to say that Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant? Are you asking one another what I've been getting at all along? Or to paraphrase him slightly, Jesus asks another one of those great questions that are his signature, characteristic way of reaching deep down inside of a human life and doing his work, Jesus asks, in effect, are you confused? Are you finally confused? If I were to pick out one condition that Jesus clearly aims to sow in human life, but which is all too frequently lacking among his followers in every single age, it would be the blessed state of confusion. Now that may sound like heresy. Bear with me as I try and demonstrate this. I do not think it is possible to seriously study the scriptures and not be struck by how perseveringly God works to undo people, to break them down, to shake their conceptions, to rattle their cage, to alter their viewpoint. 
I don't know if you've noticed how regularly throughout the scriptures, God seeks apparently to be wanting to confuse people. In fact, I would, would go so far as to say that the chief characteristic of a dead religion, of a useless spirituality, of a false Christianity, the chief characteristic is comfortable certainty. While the chief characteristic of an enlivening relationship with God is at least at stages a profoundly disorienting confusion. Self-sealed certainty is the absolute enemy of the spiritual life. It's the complete friend of religion. It's the complete friend of politics. It's the complete complete friend of social enclaves. Certainty is the complete friend of human institutions, of self-sealed human institutions. But it is the absolute enemy of the spiritual life that should be informing human institutions. When I know most or all of what God is like, when I know what God wants, when I know how God wants to show up or will always show up or will work, when I am certain about this, it will poison my relationship with God. It will poison it as certainly as this kind of certainty is death to most other kinds of relationships as well. We know this. We know this from our experience. We know this in our marriages. We know this in our friendships, in many of our relationships, that familiarity breeds not only contempt, but complacency and cirrhosis in the relationship. We stop, if we're not careful, we stop over time interacting with the miracle and the mystery of an actual living human being and we start relating instead to a set of previous experiences. A set of categories. A group of prior conceptions and convenient constructs that are actually set up for a single purpose. To keep our image of the other predictable, manageable, so that we can stay primarily just the way we are. Maybe I'm the only one who does this, but I definitely do this. Amy, I'm so sorry for the way I do this. My kids, I'm so sorry for the way I do this. My friends, my workmates, I'm so sorry. My God, I repent. I'm so sorry for the way I so often do this. This is not only relational laziness. It is a form of idolatry. It really is. Writer Annie Lamott, a wonderful uh, thinker and walker with Jesus, Annie Lamott says you can safely assume that you have created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. First clue that you don't have a God anymore. You have an idol. It's an evidence that you've got a religion that is much more about making God a reflection of you than it is about making you a reflection of him. This is why I think Jesus struck out at Jewish nationalism 
and Phariseeism alike. It's why it's the two things you see Jesus speaking most pointedly and painfully to. Because nationalism and religious Phariseeism have as their common foundation tremendous certainty. We are chosen, we are right, we are in control, we are certain about what God, what pleases God, and it is us. This is how nationalism and Phariseeism alike, alike often work. Wynne Collier, to whom I owe some of the most helpful insights in our message this morning, suggests that if the Jesus that we are hearing never finishes a sentence differently than we imagine he would, if the Jesus that we claim to follow never offers an ideology that is in direct contradiction to what we have grown comfortable with, if the Jesus that we are seeing never loves people that we would never think he should embrace, we might need to revisit the Gospels. We might need to be reintroduced to the biblical Jesus. Certainty. Certainty, in this sense, is a danger to us. And that is why I think when we read the Bible carefully, we're struck by how different the teachings of Jesus are. When we really get serious about reading it, we notice not just how different the way of Jesus is from the ethical life, the good life the world describes, but we notice how, what pains Jesus takes to, to shake up thinking for people. Uh, his teaching style itself is so radically different from the polite maxims and proverbs that characterize so much of this world's religion and philosophy. Jesus speaks in riddles and parables. Why? To confuse us. To shake us up. To make us really examine things all over again. Jesus speaks in these contradictory and shocking images. Why? To confuse us. To shake us out of the little set pathways and corridors and categories by which we have organized our life for our own comfort and convenience. And rather than trying to tie life up in these neat little boxes and bows, the teachings of Jesus, if you really read them, they're like benevolent grenades. They're out there blowing the sides of the boxes out. They're trying to force us into these Difficult places, the place where real truth in life is found in the creative tension between uh, truth on the one side and grace over here and justice and mercy and freedom and accountability between saying, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. And to live in that place, that dynamic place where life is found is, is confusing. It's confusing. But Jesus wants us to live in that disorienting place where we cleave to him, where we look to the spirit, where we go back to the scriptures. He wants us to be in that disorienting place where our selfishness gets unmasked and our idols get named. And we, our face flushes red with embarrassment at the reality that he has found us. And others know us. Jesus takes us to that place of confusion where we might finally become open to seeing God and seeing others and ourselves in 
fresh terms. And so here is a question for you. Are you sufficiently confused? Not by the message, though I understand your reasoning there. Are you sufficiently confused by Jesus? By the word of our God? Are you honestly open to having a God? A God, a living being, a dynamic, unpredictable, volatile, magnificent, mysterious God. Are you open to this? Are you open to having a God who is about your transformation and not just your tranquility? Who is about your conversion and not just your comfort? Who is about his will and not just my will? And if he says to you, as he did to those first disciples, I know you like it to be the good life, but now it's time to take up the cross. And if he says to you, I'm going to go away from you in the ways that you've known me in this history of your life up to now, I'm going to, I'm going to go away and it's going to feel like I'm absent from you for a long time, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to come back in a very fresh way and it will be a better way. If he says that to you as he did to those first disciples, can you accept that? Can you, can you name how you've been open to that? Can you point to one attitude, a single conviction, an individual pattern in your life that the still living God has profoundly reshaped during the past year to make you better reflect him, even though it was messy? Can you point to a time in just the past year or a couple of years when God has led you into a place of confusion and used it to fundamentally alter you and bring you closer to him and make you more useful to him in the world? Can you name such a time? Are you honestly open to being confused by God or does your certainty own the throne too much? That's a big question. I want to be clear, however, that confusion isn't an end in itself. God's goal is not to leave people in a place of endless disorientation. You know, as if there was nothing that you knew or could count on. People talk that way sometimes. In fact, it's increasingly fashionable to talk that way uh, these days about spiritual and religious matters as if not knowing any answers, if not believing in any definitive paths to truth or to the good is actually more spiritual, a better way. Confusion in that sense, however, of saying that, you know, anything goes, it's all up for grabs, you can never know anything. Confusion in that sense is simply a form of relativism or agnosticism. It's the spiritual and theological version of that anything can, anything is equally good mentality that has left our world in its present state of severe disintegration in many areas. Where everybody gets to define their own way. But I would suggest to you that that kind of anything goes relativism is actually another form of personal certainty. We just all get to define it ourselves. We don't have to be open to God, to someone larger than ourselves. 
The kind of confusion to which Jesus is leading us is a recurring stage on a continual journey toward greater clarity about the definition of truth and the good. It's not a permanent condition. It's a transitional stage towards a a greater understanding of what God is doing and saying and calling us to. When we're confused by Jesus, when we're disoriented by the things he tells us, then it is a sign that we are actually hearing him. In fact, I would suggest to you that if you haven't been disturbed and confused by anything Jesus has said and done in recent days, maybe you haven't been hearing him. It's a sign that that the life to which Jesus is calling us is not just a little fine-tuning a couple of clicks away from the way the world's living. It's a radical alternative to the way of our world. Jesus ushers us into confusion for the purpose of conception. Jesus is trying to birth something in us that only gets conceived through a process of confusion, momentary confusion. In John chapter 16 and verse 21, Jesus actually gives that analogy to the disciples that he's speaking to in this encounter. A woman giving birth to a child has pain, says Jesus. A woman giving birth to a child has pain. Do I hear an amen from any of us who know that's to be true? Because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Boy, I've heard this so often from women who will describe the agony of the childbirth process. And I, don't, I cannot claim to know it, though I've had kidney stones. And I'm told by doctors that that touches close to what a woman deals with. But the other thing I've heard so often from women is that there's this amazing amnesia that begins to set in as soon as they take the child in their arms. So much so, in fact, that the next time that they're in labor, they're going, oh my gosh, I'd forgotten. Why did I do this again? Jesus says, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. So with you, my disciples. Now is your time of grief. Now is the time I'm leading you into a season of confusion and disorientation and difficulty. But I will see you again. You'll come out the other side and you will rejoice because of what has been done, what has been formed. And no one will take your joy from you. No one ever, ever grieves the fact that they had to go through the labor because they see the glory of the child. The passage is worth it to them. Jesus says this about his whole life and ministry. It was for the joy set before me that I endured the cross. It was for the joy that was on the other side that I endured the great confusion. So it will be with you, says Jesus. If you let the labor, disorienting confusion Open yourself to me. In Dostoevsky's magnificent novel, Crime and Punishment, a student named Rodion, in the vernacular Radya Raskolnikov, has murdered a malevolent pawnbroker. He's done this partly out of just motives. The pawnbroker is really slimy. 
and evil. But he's also done it out of very selfish motives. And the novel centers on the interior confusion of Radia Raskolnikov. The internal struggle, first over whether to do the killing, whether it's justified, and then later over whether to confess the crime and recover his humanity and sanity that had been lost in the doing of evil's way. As the story moves towards a climax, some of you may recall Porfiry uh, Petrovich, the magistrate who's in charge of the murder investigation, calls Raskolnikov to do the absolutely unthinkable thing. He calls him to confess his guilt actively, voluntarily, and to accept the consequences of that guilt. And Raskolnikov is, again, profoundly confused. He cannot envision, he cannot conceive how making such a confession could possibly work to his own best interests, and yet he has this strange sense that Petrovich is not out to destroy him, that this calling to do the unthinkable is not the way of destruction, but might somehow be the way of deliverance. I know you don't believe in it, Petrovich says to him, but but Raja, fling yourself straight into life. Do that. Fling yourself straight into life without deliberation. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Radya. The flood will bear you to the bank and will set you safe on your feet again. What bank? How can I tell you? I only believe, I only believe that you have a long life before you, Radya. And it turns out that Petrovich is actually right. Raskolnikov's confession does not remove his struggle. It actually sends him into exile in Siberia. But it is the start, that confusion is the start of the restoration of Raskolnikov's mind and soul. His return, his discovery in a sense, of a much greater humanity. I, for one, do not know all of the contours of that confusing place into which God may have called you. I don't know that place, that confusing, disorienting place where you may be now or may be shortly. It may be in your marriage that it happens. It may be in your vocation. It may be in your health, your self-understanding. It may be in your relationship with a particular child or relative or friend or workmate. It may be, above all, in your understanding and encounter with God himself that this confusion is the most painful, the labor seems the most long. And I don't know either. I wish I did. All of the contours of the far bank to which God is calling you, plans to deliver you. But when I look at Jesus, when I study the life of Jesus, when I look at the heart of Jesus, I know that this God who calls us to these confusing places, this God is profoundly good. He's loving, wise, and good. And I know that his desire is not to destroy us, but to deliver us to a life 
that is greater than the one that we have today. And oftentimes, that deliverance will not come without profound disorientation. The new fruitfulness that He has planned will not come without a flood. The new birth without a time of labor. The great conception without a time of confusion. So are you confused? Are you confused, asked Jesus? Then maybe I have you exactly where I want you for now. Fling yourself into it. Fling yourself straight into life. Because you'll find me there. And I'll find you there. For this is the word of the Lord. The one who says, Lo, I am with you always. Even to the close of this confusing age. Amen.